The passage this morning is John 5, 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And when I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man, who had been healed. It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Dr. Susan Coven, she practices or practiced internal medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital. And several years ago, uh, she was quoted in a column in the Boston Globe. Listen to what she said. In the past few years, I've observed an epidemic of sorts. Patient after patient suffering from the same condition. The symptoms of this condition include fatigue, Irritability, insomnia, anxiety, headaches, heartburn, bowel disturbances, back pain, and weight gain. There are no blood tests or x-rays diagnostic of this condition, and yet it's easy to recognize. The condition is excessive busyness. And I would add busyness, stress, Restlessness. In fact, I had a conversation with a, a friend of mine who's a doctor recently, and he's talked about the patients that he sees time after time who have these physical symptoms. And as he starts to ask questions about them and they start to unveil their life, he realizes that, wow, that much of what they're experiencing is due to pain or uh, busyness or stress, anxiety, worry, that all of this has this kind of it produces these physical symptoms. And I would say as a culture, we're, we're aware of that. I think our culture and, and, and your heart is aware of busyness and stress and anxiety and worry. This lack of being at rest, and yet oftentimes we have no answers for it. Jesus performs this healing on the Sabbath with great intentionality to communicate to us something about rest and where we find it. So where do we find rest? Let's first look at the cause. We have this man, he's an invalid, he's a paraplegic, he's been that way for 38 years. 
And as you read it, you get the picture of a man who is, he's troubled. He's troubled. He's been laying around this pool, Jesus says later, for a long time. And he's probably laying around this pool for two reasons. One, he thinks that he could get healed in it. Two, though, it's probably a pretty fruitful ground for begging. And that's why you see this multitude of invalids lying around this pool. But what we see in this passage is that this man's troubledness or his unrest, his restlessness is not just due to his physical condition. Because what you see Jesus say later after the man's been healed and, he, and, and Jesus finds him in the temple, look at what Jesus says to him in verse 14. He says, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, now, many have noted that Jesus here is making a connection between this man's physical condition or his physical sickness and his sin. In fact, it may be the reason why Jesus picked this man out of a crowd. And that's consistent with other parts of Scripture. Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, when he's talking about the Lord's Supper, and he's talking about how you take the Lord's Supper to the Corinthian church and how you, you, you have to discern Jesus' body and confess sin, he then says in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That the scriptures talk about sin producing physical and emotional unrest. Think about it. If you, if you drink too much alcohol and you do it on a regular basis and you get your life into a, a pattern or a rhythm of drunkenness, your body's gonna get sick. If you take it to the extreme of alcohol poisoning, you could die. Or, or alcohol that produces a DUI and an accident that, that does something to your body. Right? Or if you're, uh, if you're sexually promiscuous and you get into a rhythm or a pattern or a lifestyle of sexual immorality, it's probably likely you're gonna contract a disease at some point. Or if you overwork, if you're a workaholic, and you do that for an extended period of time, probably a good chance that you're gonna develop heart problems, something stress-related at the heart level. Or if you're consumed by anxiety and worry that your life is just constantly in a, a tight ball of yarn and you're just stressed and anxious all the time, that's gonna produce physical symptoms. It's gonna produce uh, emotional unrest, potentially depression, other sorts of emotional sickness, right? The point is this, that when that sin eventually produces breakdown, that sin causes breakdown in the body, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And the key though, when you hear that, because there's a danger there, there's a danger that you start thinking, wow, my, my sin produces suffering. So anytime I suffer, that means I'm sinning. That means that God is zapping me or punishing me. Recognize that in 1 Corinthians 11, Hebrews 12, that any kind of hardship, trial, unrest, physical symptoms, all of that ultimately is God's fatherly love. Yes, it can be produced by sin, but God is, is loving as a father to rescue you out of that. Now, the scripture provides balance, right? The scripture provides balance. It's not that your, your suffering is an index of your sin. It's not a one-to-one -one ratio all the time. That if you're suffering, you go, oh, well, I must have done something wrong. No, the scripture also speaks of something different. John chapter nine, Jesus is walking around with his disciples. They come, they come upon a man who's born blind. And what do the disciples say to Jesus? They say, Jesus, who sinned? They're making this connection. Well, hey, 
If he's born blind, he must be sinful or his parents sinned, right? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, what John 9 tells us is that sin and suffering is not always a result of specific sin. That sometimes it's a result of, I'll call it capital S, sin. Genesis 3, the world is broken, and sometimes the brokenness of the world creeps in on your life and produces physical sickness or emotional sickness or unrest. Good way to think about this balance is this, that sometimes your specific sin causes physical and emotional unrest, and sometimes sin outside of you in the world and the brokenness of the world presses in on you and produces physical and emotional unrest. But the key is to see that the cause of unrest is sin, whether it's your specific sin or whether it's the brokenness and sin of our world. Now, second question to ask then, where do we find rest? That's the cause. Second is, how do we attempt to find rest? This passage lays out in this story three distinct ways that we attempt to find rest for our troubledness, our restlessness. And the first one is superstition. First one is superstition. You see here that this man is laying around this pool along with all the other invalids because somewhere along the way, this tradition had developed that this pool had some sort of healing properties. And when the water got stirred up, right, the first person that got in would be healed. At least that was the tradition, that was the belief. And somewhere this had developed. The water being stirred up, that was probably the result of an intermittent spring that would hit it. And when it stirred up, the healing waters were flowing and the first person in would get healed. And you see this man, how desperate he is, right? And how much he believes this. When Jesus says, do you want to get healed? What's the man's response? It's basically Jesus. I've been here for a long time. What do you, of course I want to get healed. Why am I here? And every time the water gets stirred up, I want to get down there, but I can't quite make it. And nobody will carry me. And I'm not the first person in. And so you sense this man's despair. Because he is, he is dead set on this pool and the superstition of it being his healing. And it's failing him. Now, superstition is all over our culture, in our world, as an attempt to find rest or a cure for restlessness or troubledness. Let me give you a few examples. Years ago, it was a London company called Goodfellow Rebecca Ingrams Pearson. They offered an insurance policy against being abducted by an alien. It's true. $156 a year. You could pull out an insurance policy that would cover you if you got abducted by an alien. And if you got abducted by an alien, they would pay out $312,000. If you got abducted by an alien and partially eaten, it would pay out like $468,000, right? What a deal. The key was, the company said, but you have to provide proof that it happened. If some of you are looking for a business to go into, there it is. You're never gonna pay out, right? Now you say, oh, that's cute. It's a, that's a cute example. But you know, did they ever sell a policy? Forbes magazine reported that they sold 30,000 
policies for that. Superstition's alive and well. Let me give you another example. It's Major League Baseball playoff time. Sorry, Yankees fans, but this is about the Yankees. Maybe this will be redemptive somehow. So you know the Yankees and the Red Sox are rivals, right? Back in 2008, when the Yankees were building their new stadium, there was a construction worker by the name of Gino Castagnoli. He was a Red Sox fan working on the new Yankee stadium. And so he was gonna do his part as a Red Sox fan. So he got a, a David Ortiz Boston Red Sox jersey and he buried it in the foundation of Yankee Stadium as they were pouring concrete. He was so excited about what he'd done, he couldn't keep his mouth closed, so he told the New York Post. And they reported this, that this had happened. Now you'd say harmless superstition, right? Not to the Yankees organization. They found out via other construction workers that were near him when it happened, where generally he had buried this Ortiz jersey and they began a five-hour project of jackhammering this foundation down two feet until they finally found this number 34 Ortiz jersey, tattered, and they took it out. They had, you know, photographs. That was media day, right? They were, they, I don't think they ever did. They were considering opening up a civil lawsuit against Gino Castagnoli for the $30,000 they spent digging up this jersey. It's a shirt. It's a shirt. Now, before you get too judgmental and critical, you have to ask the question, what is behind superstition? It's control. It's control of whatever higher power you may believe in. Controlling the gods. Whatever you believe in, somehow I'm going to get them to do what I want. Now, there's a Christian version of this. You can turn the Bible into superstition. You can turn prayer into superstition. You can turn Sunday morning church attendance into superstition as a way that you're going to control God, get him to act on your behalf. The problem with superstition and the control that's behind it, it never brings rest. In fact, it increases more unrest and more restlessness. So how do we seek rest? One, through superstition. Now the next two, the second and third ways that we seek rest that we see in this passage, they come across as polar opposites, but they're actually very similar. Let me explain. There's two, seeking rest in freedom and seeking rest in performance. Let me start with freedom, seeking rest in freedom. Look at this paraplegic, what happens? He gets healed leaves, the Jews say, you just violated the Sabbath by picking up your bed and walking. And what does he do? He shifts blame. He says, some man told me to do it. They say, who was it? He says, I don't know. And then what happens, right? Jesus meets him in the temple and reveals himself. But then what does he do even after that? He says he walks away and he told the Jews that Jesus did it. You know, I we don't know exactly what's going on with this man, but you get the sense it's, uh, Jesus told me to do it. He's the problem. Okay, and now I'm gonna, I'm gonna move on. It rings a little bit similar to the, when Jesus heals the 10 lepers. I think it's in Luke 17. Jesus heals 10 lepers. Only one comes back to thank him. 
right? There's this, I've been healed and now I get to go on and live my life. Or I, I've got freedom from the penalty of sin and I've got forgiveness. Past, present, future, every sin forgiven so I can live my life how I want to live it. The freedom to do what I want to do. Now in theological circles, this is called licentiousness, meaning license to sin. I'm forgiven so it doesn't matter how I live. I, can, I have the freedom to do what I want. Now, the other way we seek rest seems like just the opposite, seeking rest in performance. Now, where do we see that in this passage? Well, the Jews question this man, right? After he's healed, he carries his mat, and they start telling him and getting on his case for breaking the Sabbath. And what is so striking is that they are so tuned in to their law-keeping and performance on the Sabbath that they can't even acknowledge that this man who for 38 years was a paraplegic had been healed. They can't even see it. They're so committed to that law-keeping of the Sabbath. Now, what was the problem? Well, the problem was he picked up his bed and he walked. In the, in the oral law of Judaism in that day, it's a, from a document that we have called the, the Mishnah, they had created 39 categories of work, not just 39 behaviors, but 39 categories of work that you could not do on the Sabbath. And one of those was picking up a bed of sorts and moving it somewhere else. So this man had violated that. He had, he had broken out. You say, how in the world do they create 39 categories of work that were well, above, well, well, well beyond what God had prescribed for the Sabbath? He said, how's that happen? Well, it makes sense. If you're seeking rest in performance, then how do you find more rest? You perform more. How do you perform more? You make another rule, right? So you, you can see how this develops. Listen, those of you that love checklists, checklists aren't bad, okay? So I'm not condemning your checklists. But you know, those of you that love checklists, and you love being able to check the boxes off. And by the end of the day, if you can check all the boxes, you're like, ah, right? I can rest. You know what that feeling is, right? Sometimes I just want to create boxes and things so that I can just check, 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 right? It's seeking rest in, in performance. Some of you actually need to have a checklist, okay? That, that's actually a good thing but seeking rest in performance. Now, in theological circles, this is called legalism. Legalism is simply seeking rest in your performance, and you're only as happy as your last performance. Your happiness, your self-worth is tied up in how well you do. So, you're only as happy as your last real estate sale. You're only as happy as your last business deal. For preachers, you're only as happy as your last sermon goes, right? Your identity is wrapped up in the last thing that you did well, right? That's seeking rest in performance. Now, I said, those seem like polar opposites, don't they? Seeking rest in freedom says, I'm forgiven, I'm doing what I want. Seeking rest in performance says, I'm gonna follow all the rules. I'm going to make some more so I can check it off. They're actually the, the, the identical thing. 
because both of those hate God's law. And now when I say God's law, you immediately think rules. No, by God's law, I mean God's design for your life as your maker, how he has designed life to be lived. Both hate it, right? In the case of legalism, which is seeking rest in performance, you hate his law so much that you have to reduce it to some achievable behaviors. Recognizing that God's law always was about the motivations of the heart, right? But, but you, you can't, you hate it so much, you say, I'm gonna reduce it to something achievable like 39 categories of work on the Sabbath. Now, other side, seeking rest in freedom or licentiousness, right? You hate God's law, so you just disregard it. But don't you see the commonality between both? Seeking freedom or rest in freedom and seeking rest in, in performance, Bottom line, all three of these attempts to find rest, superstition, freedom, and performance, they all are self-salvation projects. They're all self-salvation projects. They all are attempts to find rest by being your own Lord and Savior. That's what ties them all together, and ultimately they leave you restless. So let's move on to the final point then. So where do you find rest? We've looked at the cause. We've looked at attempts to find rest, but what is the way of rest? And at the center of this passage is Sabbath. And this Sabbath is the absolute hinge upon which we answer this, what's the way of rest? Jesus could have healed this invalid on any day of the week. He could have done it on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday. He chose to do it on the Sabbath for a reason because he's trying to teach us something about the Sabbath and what it means. So what is the Sabbath? Well, it begins in Genesis chapter two. It says that when God finished his work of creation in six days, on the seventh day, he rested from the work he had done. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that God got tired and that he needed a nap. Okay, God doesn't get tired. No, what it means is that he rested and he cherished he cherished the beauty of creation, what he had made. He stopped and he paused and he cherished and he celebrated the beauty of it. So if that is Sabbath, then, then that has to speak to something about how we treat Sabbath or how we view it. And we see in the Ten Commandments, when God commands us to observe Sabbath, we see in, the, in his command, six days you shall do your labor, seventh day should be a Sabbath to the Lord your God. We see that in both Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. But what God attaches to each of those commands tells us a lot about what Sabbath is. So if you look at Exodus 20, when God says in Exodus 20 to observe Sabbath, right? he follows that Sabbath command with, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and rested on the seventh day. In other words, he ties Sabbath there to creation to creation, to design. In other words, that Sabbath is a celebration of your design, the way you're created, which means that when you overwork, you're violating your design, that God created you with limits. And some of us don't like to hear that. God created you with a capacity cap. You have capacities and limits. That's part of your creation design. And Sabbath is a celebration of that. So it says, stop, stop working, right? 
Rest. Celebrate your design. There's this rhythm between work and rest. Now, Deuteronomy 5, 10 commandments in Deuteronomy 5. When God says, makes the Sabbath command, six days you labor, seventh day, Sabbath to the Lord your God, he follows it with, you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord brought you out from there with a mighty hand. So here he ties Sabbath to redemption. That Sabbath is a reenactment of your freedom from the slavery of sin and the slavery of idolatry. If you can't take rest from work, if you can't take Sabbath from work, then you're a slave to something, right? You're a slave to success or power or money or reputation. Something is driving that. So when God says rest, it's, it's, a, it's a celebration of your design that you're made with limits, you're finite, and it's a celebration of redemption, right? Of this freedom from these awful idols of, of power, success, and money that can cause breakdown in your life. And so it's a celebration of design and a celebration of redemption. And now you can see why physical rest on the Sabbath is necessary, but it's not it or the end in and of itself. That God commands physical rest as a, as a, a way to heart rest, that ultimately the physical rest is, is there so that you're forced into this heart rest of celebrating your design and your redemption from this slavery and these idols that can take control of your life. Where's that heart rest found? Well, if Sabbath is a celebration of your design and your redemption, who's your designer and maker? Jesus Christ. Who's your redeemer? Jesus Christ. So you see that Sabbath is a celebration of Jesus as your designer and maker and Jesus as your redeemer who's rescued you out of slavery. And now you can see why the Jews missed it with what they had done with Sabbath. They had gotten so behaviorally oriented on the physical rest that they never got to the center of Sabbath, the center of design and redemption, which was Jesus Christ himself, so that when he showed up on the scene on the Sabbath, they didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize him. They told him to get out. Imagine you go to a, a friend's apartment and you discover when you get into your friend's apartment that they have this wonderful coffee maker. Brews amazing coffee. Phenomenal. It's brand new. It's functional. It's shiny. It's polished. It's, it makes amazing coffee. And they're using it as a doorstop. What would you think? You'd walk in, you'd see this amazing coffee maker as a doorstop, and you'd go, what a waste. Now imagine if you go pick that coffee maker up and you take it into your friend's kitchen and you say to your friend, let me show you the amazing coffee that this machine makes. And your friend goes ballistic. Says, how dare you move my doorstop? That thing's a doorstop. Don't take my doorstop away. Get out of here. They kick you out of the apartment, right? You get a sense of why they kicked Jesus out. Right? The Sabbath had become a doorstop, so to speak. And Jesus comes in 
to say, let me tell you what Sabbath is about. It's about rest, celebrating your design and your redemption, and it's all found in me. Because they had it as a doorstop, said, Jesus, get out. We don't want it. Now, how does Jesus show them the real purpose of the Sabbath? Right? He breaks in on Sabbath day. How does he show it to them? Look at verse 8. He breaks into the Sabbath day and he announces the true way of rest in verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. Get up. That's resurrection language. Other parts of the Gospels. It's resurrection language. So day after day, year after year, you have this man who is eking out his existence by this pool, just hoping that one day, maybe one day, I'll be the first one in that pool. One day, maybe I'll be healed. You've got the Jews. All right, so he's, he's seeking rest in this superstition. You've got the Jews that are, that are saying, oh, the 39 categories of work. Don't you dare violate that. That's where we find our rest. Eking out day to day this, this, this slavery on the Sabbath. And Jesus steps right into the middle of that and says, get up, rise, come alive to me. I'm the one in whom you'll find rest. I'm your creator and designer. I'm the one that's redeemed you from slavery. Experience new creation in me. I am the Sabbath. That's what Jesus comes to say to him. So what's this mean for you? What does it mean for you? Let me give you two levels of meaning here. First level of meaning. I started with that quote from the doctor, Massachusetts General Hospital. My friend who's a doctor, doctors who are in this room would agree with that. Some of you are experiencing the unrest, physically, emotionally. And you know it's true because there's moments when you're alone, maybe in your room or in a closet, where you just weep. You just weep because you know something's not right. Your life is a hectic, busy, stressful, anxious, worried chaos. There's breakdown in your body. There's breakdown emotionally. Your family's breaking down. Your kids are breaking down. I mean, you just, you know it. And Jesus comes into that and he looks at you and he says, I am your rest. Will you just submit to me? Will you just come to me and find your rest? Recognize your limits. Recognize that I've redeemed you. Second level of meaning. If we take Sabbath to be a, a spiritual discipline of sorts or a means of grace, right, and broaden it. So Sabbath broadened to reading your Bible, to praying, to worship, to uh, corporate worship, to the sacraments, to baptism, the Lord's Supper, right? It, you can make your spiritual disciplines a doorstop, to use the coffee maker example. When, when God gives you those things, the means of grace, word and prayer and the, the Lord's Supper and baptism and, and even Sabbath rest, 
He gives those to you as a gift that are meant to unite you to Jesus. Not to be the means of satisfying your failed attempts at rest. As I said earlier, you can use the spiritual disciplines as superstition. You can use the spiritual disciplines as uh, performance. And what's interesting is that when you see that they superstitiously don't work, because you can't control God, and when you see that performance-wise they don't work because you miss a day or two, a lot of times what do we do? Well, I'm going to ditch them completely, and I'm going to try to seek my, my rest and freedom from them. And Jesus says, no, these are gifts to you. That when you open your Bible, when you pray, when you come to worship, when you take the Lord's Supper, is it, here's what the question, here's the question. Is there an anticipation of hearing Jesus say to you once again, get up, rise, experience this new creation that's found in me, find your rest in me? Do you hear the powerful voice of God in the scriptures and in prayer and in worship, the powerful voice of the Son of God saying, get up, and calling you out of your false attempts and your despairing attempts to find rest, so that you would find your rest in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, would you forgive us for all the ways in which we attempt to find rest, all the ways in which we attempt to deal with our troubledness and our restlessness, the ways that we, we try to control you through superstitious activity, the ways that we try to perform and feel good about performing, the ways that we pursue this freedom of, I'm just gonna live my life how I want and find rest. Forgive us for that, Father. Would you, by your spirit, bring us to our knees to say, Jesus, you are our rest, period. You're our maker and our designer. You're our redeemer. And so when we rest on Sabbath, Jesus, we rest in you and cherish you. Father, as we close in worship and we sing about feasting, would we be a people who feast, who drink deeply of you. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.